Hello, this is the Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is David Turner. Today's episode is in three parts. Coming up at the end is uh, Swedish spoken word artist Agnes Torek. For her is Nadia Drews. First up is Emlyn Maurizio. I met up with Emlyn in South London, where we both live. We got together to have a chat about Emlyn's poetry and talked about quite a few things, but mainly revolving around uh, identity, as is uh, often the case with most of the guests, but specifically Emlyn uh, identifying as queer and Colombian, but I won't go into that too much because you're about to listen to it. Emlyn doesn't have any websites or blogs, but we'll be reposting any gig dates in case you want to go and see them. You can keep up to date with what Emlyn's up to and what we're up to at Lunar Poetry Podcasts on Facebook, SoundCloud and Tumblr, and at silent underscore tongue on Twitter. You can download all new and previous episodes at, on iTunes and Stitcher apps. Here's Emlyn. By extension, I hold the culture I was born with. From the blood of my mother and her mother and her mother before then, now I seek to find them through photographs and stories that she would tell me. The kind that triggered the tears and tickled me with laughter and reminded me that even though you are born in a certain place, your roots will always trace back to the beginning of space and time. I have been told I am British, Colombian, mixed, brown, coloured, queer and a faggot, Catholic unfixed by the hand of God who seeks to love all of his children in exchange for obedience and fear. I cried thinking that when I'd be near to death's door, the devil will be waiting with my name on a list of blasphemers and heretics. Self-loathing would come spilling from my eyes and mouth. Por favor, Dios, cambiarme. Yo no quiero esta vida que ha creado para mí. My identity is not fixed, but I am here. Living under the white man's gaze, he drools as I am fetishized and praised for my tonal skin and the way I say, Colombia. You like that, don't you? The way I say things in my mother's tongue before they cut it halfway so that she could assimilate and lessen the pain of leaving her homeland for love and a better life so that her children can sound just like you, disguising our bodies with our voices, fooling you into thinking, I'm very quite British. By extension, I hold the culture I was born with. I was cut out, not birthed gender assigned and not given a choice in a world much like God itself that loves and listens, massacres and silences, advocates freedom and demands worship. I am the culture I was born with. I am the queerness that I have embraced. Thank you very much, Emily. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for coming to join us. Um, because uh, that poem is so heavily laden with references to identity and stuff, um, so your based now in South London, just down, around the corner from where we are in Elephant and Castle, but maybe you could tell us a bit about your background and yeah. how you came to South London. Um, yeah, uh, I grew up, um, I was born and grew up in uh, Milton Keynes originally, but um, uh, I, I identify as Colombian, my mother's Colombian, um, my dad is Welsh, uh, I've always been 
I've always had my mother around me though and I've always been drawn to that side of my uh, cultural identity. I've been to Colombia many times as well um, and always felt that in a place that was predominantly white, um, like being othered by like people around me as well. So Milton Keynes is quite a multicultural place but it's within its own bubble um, and um, it's a very weird place to grow up. So, um, after living in Milton Keynes, I lived in Sheffield for a few years, um, studying photography, and then I came here, and it wasn't really until I came here that I kind of found other Latinx people who were also queer, who really embraced it and really um, loved each other, and that was something that I didn't have access to um, back in Milton Keynes. Um, there isn't really a queer scene there at all. Um, so to find that was a huge comfort for me um, and I've been able to find my voice I guess mm. living here um, and like and like stumble upon <laughs> Colombia here as well it's there's such a huge community here um, and it's on my doorstep um, I was gonna say yeah like living in Camberwell or Elephant Castle it's, it's pretty yeah good place to be yeah you know? absolutely yeah. and Brixton as well yeah. uh, Peckham too um, and uh, like I have that and I have access to it um, and it's just something that I wasn't really afforded growing up except for when we would go to Colombia I've been quite privileged that I've been to Colombia as many times as I have um, for six times throughout my whole life in different stages of my life as well so I've got to experience it as a, as a child, as a teenager and as an adult um, and it's been many years since I've been as well so it's nice to have something that's close to home at home <laughs> you yeah, know what yeah. I mean like so yeah and I really value that um, um, you mentioned your mum in the poem how much of um, her experiences of moving informs your work quite a lot um, <clears throat> especially as um, she, when she did first come to this country she did have to deal with a lot of racism um, and uh, and yeah, just having her around me. It's funny as well, because like, I, I grew up not knowing the language, um, which was something that she was denied to do to me as well. Um, out of her assimilation into British culture and her way to survive. So um, now I'm making it my responsibility to learn the language. And within a lot of the homes I do, like, they're mainly in English, but I switch to Spanish and at least, like, some Spanish that I know or I know I can, like, translate. Um, and I think that's a really important part of my work, just kind of showing that disparity between, like, um, the, the language and what was denied to me um, growing up. So. I had a similar experience. My grandfather was Spanish. Um, but by the time he and his brothers came here, they were so determined to fit in, yeah. in quotation marks, whatever that was. Yeah, exactly. There was very little Spanish. Some of my cousins speak Spanish, and, but I think it was down to their individual parents' decision. Yeah. They didn't sort of... It it's, can get... It can be, that wall can go up very quickly, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, yeah. With, with people's feelings of... Um, wondering whether it's a particularly British thing mm. to like force that form of... Um, assimilation yeah. to just sort of 
forget everything that came before yeah and to become mm. really quite british or whatever la, la, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah but I, and I, I i think and it is a forced thing as well um especially from like the everyday people around you um like um I would always be told, like, you know, I have to be proud of my Britishness as well. But, like, when growing up, even though I was denied the language, I always had, I always had the food, I had the culture, I had the music. And um, the, my, my mother did have, uh, ha does have quite a few Latin American friends um, in the town that we grew up in. So, there, at least there was that there. And there was something that I was just in love with. And really, that was, that was me. That was uh, what I was and who I was. So... Mm. Uh, and who I am. <laughs> and how did you first get into spoken word or poetry? Um, I, I've always had a, a love for poetry, um, but I, in terms of like actually doing it and performing it, um, I kind of started when I was living in Sheffield, but it wasn't really focused on anything in particular. It was just like little kind of like look back at it now, kind of like just very meaningless kind of stuff. I didn't really perform it that much though. But um, yeah, it really has been since I moved here and I've been inspired by artists, like good friends of mine, like um, Travis Alabanza and SA um, and other uh, cute pop performers. I've seen my friend Chana as well, who does a lot of music um, and I, that kind of that really brought it out of me, and uh, also I that I haven't really seen not to say that there aren't any, but I, I just haven't really well except for Essay actually, who I do know um, is of Latin American descent as well, but um, didn't realize that until later. Mm. So uh, yeah, not knowing or seeing many um, Latinx-based artists or poets. Um, specifically doing that kind of stuff and uh and like i was saying earlier since coming to this place and realizing the kind of q-pop particularly latinx q-pop scene here it was just um a huge inspiration for me so that kind of brought it out of me and also like i've been finding out a lot more about my own heritage um in colombia but in south america in general and um just the history and everything it's that's been a major influence on me um and has your work developed in that way since coming to london and meeting these writers yeah that's, that's quite a f yeah. even though those three names you just mentioned it's quite a formidable list of performers isn't it like, yeah you, yeah you, you get to meet and, <laughs> and yeah and it's great as well because they're, they're all friends of mine as well and like um people whose work is beautiful and people who are beautiful as well and um i'm really I feel really lucky that I have them in my life as well. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, maybe we'll take a second reading at this point. Yeah. Okay. This, uh, this next one, <clears throat> uh, just give you a little bit of context. This one I wrote about my cousin Alexander, who passed away many years ago. Um, he was the first person in my family in Colombia who I found out was openly gay. Um, which was a huge thing for me because it was at a time when I was uh, a teenager and I was like really nervous about being qu queer presenting but also like just telling anyone, um, anyone in my family about it. So it was amazing. Uh, we only met him once as well um, and 
just have this very fond memory of him like taking us places in Bogota and um, just have he had this great charisma and a beautiful smile and um, sadly a year later we found out that he um, passed away of an HIV and, uh, or AIDS related disease and I wrote this uh, last year um, and uh, this is also to honor my mother as well and the way she dealt with it when she found out. So, and this is called The Whisper. The Whisper, a certain word, through a certain sound swept under the carpet as we celebrate this certain vow of atonement, which they unleash under moments of peril. We do as he so says and then we tremble. And within this space, Alexander may embrace, will embrace, should embrace this conjure of thought, more his desire, which will inspire my faith in reason. A form of treason so outdated yet still dated, beyond just a few decades, they still think that AIDS is just a thing that exists within the memories of those lost, but they know fuck all, they don't know the cost. I found out from my mother, Espiritu Santos, my cousin whispers, Alex is gay and he has AIDS. My mother whispers, you don't have to whisper. Thank you, Emily. Um, just because I was speaking to the poet Andre Simons yesterday, I don't know if you know of Andre's work, so he's from Bermuda originally, but um, there's, there's a very strong queer voice okay. in his work. Mm. It's a really interesting chat, but we were talking about how when I first saw him talk and read it was at, a, uh, at an event at the poetry library um, it's called po queer poets on teaching there was a, a question at the end uh, around um it would be would the ultimate pro progression be for people to drop the label queer in that if we were all equal in some way would you would that no longer be necessary but he his answer was that he's very proud of the label and it sort of came when he explained the answer it, it comes from because he grew up in bermuda um, the colour of his skin didn't other him because he was mm. very much in the majority there. So it was the queer queerness that othered him. Mm. And I was just wondering, it may, it may seem like an oversimplification. I know obviously there are many layers to everybody's work and stuff, but what, what do you feel is your, your identity, the strongest identity that comes through your work? Is it the Colombian heritage or is it the queerness? Or it can obviously be an extra. Uh, yeah, I, f I feel it's... Equally both. Mm. Um, yeah, because just, yeah, both have been part of me <laughs> my whole life and uh, um, both have been like struggles as well um, within like, within predominantly like white masculine um, spaces. Um, even like, even in like the so, I say there isn't a queer scene, but the so-called queer scene, quotation marks it, uh, in Milton Keynes, um, where yeah, I, I, there I didn't feel comfortable both as a queer person and as a Colombian, um, and uh, so yeah, both um, for me both of them I feel just kind of come together in my work. I, I think the reason I was 
stumbling towards that question in some ways because I was just wondering about do you do you think the the message of your work is always recognised by audiences in London or is it do you think sometimes it's missed I sometimes feel like when um, performers of like Latin American heritage talk about uh, issues around racism mm. sometimes obviously predominantly white mm. audiences sometimes think oh what would you mean? like is yeah. that a serious problem you know like sometimes it doesn't always seem like they get it in the yeah. same way I, I, I and I feel like that has to do with the fact that like um, as Latinx we don't really have an, um, an existence in this country um, it's here in London but even in London it's because um, I, I, I remember someone telling me that um, it was only recently or last year, I can't quite remember, that in Southwark, um, where there's a huge Latin American community, um, they finally managed to get their identity on the um, on the those equality forms. And that was something like that was something I never had. Like I always ticked other other and like please specify like Latin American. Um so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've had experiences with other people as well where um, the, kind of, the kind of racism that, I've dealt, that I have dealt with mostly is um, purely fetishization, um, which is directed at, tends to be directed at the whole cocaine issue. And then, like, and then when I'm, when it comes to like being queer as well, when that comes up in discussion, it's just like my experiences with many um, people is this, especially like with uh, gay cis white men, when they're like, oh, you know how exotic and all that stuff. It's, uh, but uh, in terms of as well, in terms of like performing and like if people like get it. Um, I don't know. I've had I've had like reactions from people like when people have come up to me and they've like people have like said like and this is mainly from uh, other cutie pop they've really taken to it and like have told me like thank you for sharing this. Um, I remember I did a performance at Lon with the London Mexico Solidarity uh, last week on Tuesday. Um, and one of my friends, Diana, who organised the event, um, she she thanked me for sharing um, um, my work, uh, and it was the poem, the first poem that I read actually, uh, around the issue of language as well, um, because she also has uh, her being Mexican Canadian, but also being denied a language, um, and uh, like. I was so grateful for that when she came up to me and uh, said that because it was just like, because I, I already knew um, she had that experience, but like, I, I don't know, we just kind of had that moment where it's just like, you know, we see each other, we feel each other, and we know that this is what we've been through. Um, and yeah, that was really com comforting for um, me, for sure. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um you mentioned earlier that you studied photography in Sheffield. So, what do you is photography something you continue to work with now, or? Yeah, I, I still do photography. Um, not as much as 
not, not as much lately because um, I've been focusing more of, on performing and my music and my poetry. But um, since being in London, I have taken part in photographing um, certain protests and actions around um, Latin American um, activist groups as well. But then um, I'm also trying to do a project where I kind of just using found imagery from my mother's past as well as like using my own found imagery to kind of like create a narrative about like my heritage and culture. That's still a work in process, uh, so... No, I always find it a surprise that more poets or spoken word performers aren't, don't also have a, a firm interest in photography as well, because mm. they seem to fit so well together, you know, that whole act of documenting yeah. in short form. It's, uh, funny, it's funny you mention that, because um, I was actually thinking about this today, and um, my, uh, when I was at university, my tutors used to call my work poetic, but more specifically in my um, writing, when I was doing my research and annotating and mind mapping and stuff like that, they would always, yeah, they would always say like the the way you write is very poetic. So, and I guess, I guess now I've kind of taken that next step <laughs> or, or at least like um, just transferred my work somewhere else. Mm. So, yeah. And uh, yeah, maybe you could tell us a bit about music as well and what, yeah. that has to the writing and yeah um so like i've i've been doing music for a while now uh, longer than i've been doing poetry um and i guess in the same way with my poetry as well only in the recent years i've been writing more about the same kind of stuff um but the way i write with music um is is slightly different i don't know how to describe it exactly just more in the way i write um, so I'll, it, I, I have like pages and pages of like just short sentences and stuff that like haven't even been finished yet but often like those tend to be the ones I like use for my music um, and seem to flow better um, as music so yeah. And what influence did your, uh, the trip, previous trips you've taken to Colombia have on your music? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been six years since I've yeah. been to Colombia, so it's been a while. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I've had, I've had any, because I haven't been there so long, like, I haven't found any, like, inspiration from being there as such, I guess. But then I do at the same time. Um, but I think that's more centred around, like, where I am now, mm. um, with the people that I have around me as well, like, other queer Colombians and other queer Latin Americans as well. Um, I, but I guess like that's mainly rooted as well within my mother um, from stories um, that she would tell me and like the experiences of my abuelita as well um, when they were in Colombia together. It wasn't an easy time for them either so but yeah I would, I would say that's that's definitely like where a lot of my inspiration comes from and where like I tend to kind of rewrite these stories or at least reference them um, in connection to myself and how they've shaped me mm. as well so because um, I can never I can never like um, sit down and be like right okay I'm gonna write something 
uh, it doesn't work that way for me. I feel like that's too forced. So when it's just when something occurs to me, or even if it's just like a a, a line that I think in my head, um, and then I kind of make that connection, and I'm able to like reinterpret or like tell this story through a song, through a poem. Mm. So um, it may just be because uh, I'm living in London currently, and I meet most of the poets that we interview just because it's um, so much more convenient are in London and then you naturally meet either immigrants or children of immigrants. Mm. Um, there's there's a very strong theme in their work, I think, of um, retelling stories mm. for, for their family. Yeah, yeah. Um, do, you, do, you, do you feel a slight obligation to do that as well in your work, do you? Or maybe obligation is too strong a word, mm. but... Uh, like they they are personal stories, mm. um, so yeah, I wouldn't say I feel obliged to tell them because like they are personal stories. Like, but I'm I'm willing to share them because like for me it's also a form of therapy, and just sort of dealing with just the everyday, and even even the past as well. Like with the experiences I've had with other people, with regards to homophobia or queerphobia and um, racism. Yeah, it's, it's, that's kind of, it's my way of like dealing with those thoughts and feelings and with those people. Um, and, uh, and it's important for me to like perform these in queer spaces as well, because I'm not comfortable doing it in predominantly um, straight places. Um, it's, for me, it's like they, <laughs> um, I don't know. I wouldn't want to go through all that stuff again, so they don't. They don't deserve to hear it. <laughs> um, it's yeah. It's something I I will share with people. Who, well, at least like who I hope and like you know people have had like that understanding and been able to like you know engage with it, whether or not that's with other people. I don't know, but um, at, at least I know like within the space within the queer space at least then. I do have a level of comfort where I can do that, so. I think we might take a third and final reading, please. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, so this uh, last poem is one I wrote for our vigil for the Orlando victims. Um, we held our own vigil because the, uh, there was that vigil that happened in central London, which was huge. But um, there was a complete disregard and a complete whitewashing of our people within that. Um, and it was important for us that we had this for us as well, because um, there was also the shooting that happened in Mexico, which went completely um, under everyone's radar. Well, I mean, the media failed to even like um, tell, tell a story about it. Um, and this vi like this violence happens every day um, to our people in the global south, in South America, in Mexico, in Central America, um, and uh, it was important for us that we had it for ourselves. And we, there were so many people that came as well, which was amazing to see. So I wrote this um, for this uh, vigil, but also for these people as well. Uh, this one is called One Last Breath of the Party. 
One last breath at the party they cried. So much love gathered in the heart and soul of the dance and the song that the movement and the voice echoed, moving me, making me sing for my people whose names just barely reached the headlines. And to be obscured by hatred that white men are so good at, strategically pinning us against our allies. But we can see right through their lies. We can read between the blurred lines. We can see the smudge of our roots that they deny. We can see el amor continua en esta tragedia. Mano en mano somos más fuertes que la lluvia. One last breath at the party, they cried. Yo siento el baile, siento la canción. Siempre me acordaré, siempre queer, siempre Latinx. Thank you very much, Emlyn. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So that was Emily Maurizio. Next up, we've got Lizzie Palmer talking to Nadia Drews. Uh, you may have heard Nadia read on a couple of recent episodes. She read a poem by Niall O'Sullivan for the National Poetry Day episode that we put out. And she was also reading as part of the Poetry Unplugged 20th anniversary celebrations. As you'll find out from the interview, Nadia hasn't been uh, reading for that long. So as with Emily, she doesn't have a website or blog that you can follow but if you want to find out what she's up to then we'll we'll be posting updates on all our social media pages and that is Nadia the things she did not say it was in the way she spit jutting jets tongue funneled through a rizzle thin grimacing gap like a mill misting drizzle hitting initials written in steamed up spots pitting drop against drop Signatures spattering the kitchen window like a fingertip spritz, stemming the flow of a twisted tap, slapping wrists, scolding the awkward bits from tea, sticking fast, resisting being swilled away down the drain. An increasingly distant disdain aimed at blameless pavement, a filthy mirror lying a booted foot away. A torn tissue containing a tear-shamed face. The back of an anorak that gawp shouldn't have worn. A slammed against the clamouring, I'm not coming back, door. A palm full of dripping, slipping, wish you weren't born. A frothy top tea you shouldn't have ordered. The bile-filled bowl of hope, hospital sicked away. The stamps on the letters to Risley she wrote every day. The things she did not say. It was in the way she spit. Thanks very much. That's wonderful. So, I don't know where to start with you because there's so much <laughs> I want to talk to you about. Um, I think I'd like to ask you first um, about the strong influences you appear to have in your writing. Um, I mean, as because I know you and I've heard you perform a lot now, um, it seems that the main... or two of the main things that have influenced you a lot have been music and politics and correct me if I'm wrong um but if perhaps if you'd like to talk a little bit to us about how those things came about um how you got involved with them and and why absolutely and uh yeah music and politics really those are the those are the things that have shaped any anything that I put on paper um the politics um 
I was uh, is in my family history. I was brought up by um, a single parent mother who um, has had a lifelong commitment to socialism, and um, which involved the experiences of canvassing for Labour, heckling Liberal Democrat candidates outside of the window, identifying with the anti-Nazi League. Um, continual kind of conflicts um, in terms of her standing up for what she believed was right and um, that led me to go through quite a a, a rapid um, development politically which meant by the time I was um, in my teens I'd already um, become alienated from the left, extreme left of the Labour Party and, and joined a um, a Trotskyist organisation left home with the idea that I would change the world. Mm. Um, but I did that with a red guitar that had been bought for £10 by my mum off the local yoga teacher, um, which was a beautiful guitar that was promptly stolen as soon as I hit Liverpool. Uh, stereotypes notwithstanding, <laughs> uh, which is where I left home to. Um, and I thought that changing the world as a revolutionary um, would also involve me changing changing the world of music as well. Um, so I had grand visions, um, many of which weren't realised. Um, and I think in middle age, probably... Um, what I'm still trying to um, act on those impulses from teenage, which substantially means that I'm, um, I think the world is rotten to its core, and um, I believe that music and other art forms, including poetry, yeah. can play a role in lifting people's spirits to change it. Mm. So, were the the politics and the music always intertwined for you? Yeah, um, that was my mother's uh, responsibility as well, uh, which she, I can hear her wincing at having that laid at her door. But um, we arrived, I was born in San Francisco in 1967 and arrived um, in Lancashire from there in 1969. So with my mum with a, a suitcase full of vinyl records, which were... Um, contained records like Alan Lomax's recordings of um, prison songs. Um, so Alan Lomax was one of the first people who recorded um, the music of um, African American mm. people, and um, also music of from people like uh, Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, um, which she had heard played live down at the docks. The Longshoremen. Um, would have those musicians playing because um, she was a member of the left of the Young Democrats um, so she canvassed around what during the, um, the the riots in Watts at the time yeah. so in the suitcase when we arrived in Lancashire there were politics and music really yeah. Um, so yeah so where did the poetry come in? Um, I had a, an unreasonable irrational um antipathy to poetry from quite a young age which was typical of me in that anything that I felt was going to exclude me from culture I hated and um, although my mum had almost any book of poetry that you would want to have in the house um, when I was very young um, I felt that 
I um, was excluded from that in the school environment. So I reacted to that by um, by defining lyrics as being distinct from poetry. Yeah. And again, typically of me, I'm a very slow learner. In middle age, I've come to poetry as like, that seeming to me to be like the independent music scene of the early 80s. Um, so it's... Uh, become clear to me that when I was writing lyrics I was probably a secret poet as well. Um, And when did you actually start to perform your poetry? Only um, about 18 months ago probably Um, so I'd become a musician you know a long time ago uh, but um, had arrived in London and found and fallen on hard times really and found a way back to community really through the local poetry scene I live very close to the poetry cafe so like many other poets I've discovered through the Lena Poetry podcasts I came through Poetry Unplugged. That's where I first saw you actually probably quite a few times saw you read there before we actually met. Okay Um, (laughs) apologies again. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny who you managed to just bypass for ages Mm. and who comes together um perhaps we could have a second reading at this point. Um, yes, I was just talking about having uh, moved from the States to um, Lancashire and this piece is um, called Punky Sue, I Love You. I found myself a child of the counterculture in um, a council estate that housed lots of very unhappy working class girls um, but this is about the kind of love I had for them. Flowered, eyes flared, I sat there and stared. She had sugar-spiked, licorice-stick hair. With ripple-dripped lips, blackcurrant lolly-licked hips, she shone, sherbet white, through mohair. On the smacked lino floor, by the battered back door, I sat down, no protest, and saw with horror bag crisps as she spoke smoke-wisp lisps of wounds she had got in her war. Glue stuck to her side, sniffed limp, lifeless cries from a sickly, gripped, jelly baby boy. Cough dropped, dummy topped from a bleak, sheetless cot, no peekaboo toy hiding joy. She told the big girls what she knew of the world, of benefits, costs, lost fist fights, of what you should give, how often and how tattooed tracks mark lifelines black as night. She watched the crack clock, but when she took the knock, we were kicked out. She cursed and she swore she'd never been glad to see those bad lads, but they kept on knocking for more. Well, she did a flit when she'd got sick of it, and it turned out she wasn't so fit. And riddled slag lads, they bragged what they'd had, and popping space dust turned to grit. But I'd been there and seen what a love heart she'd been, a bubblegum sticker for keeps. And when I'm on the floor and I've locked all my doors, I savour the taste of cheap sweets. Thank you. <clears throat> um, I love your poetry for the sounds. It's very almost tasty <laughs> when you read it. <laughs> And it's it surprises oh, nice. me that you've only been reading for that long because it's sort of made to be said aloud. Um, so I was wondering just before that actually how the thought of performance and reading aloud 
how that has an influence on the way you write. Has it changed much over the course of your your writing career, as it were? Um, I think probably what's happened um, is that I've brought something of the kind of drive or the craving that I had when I um, wanted to become a musician into the the poetry and performance world so which just means that I care I think it's a I hesitate I'm not a spiritual person in any in any way uh, but I think the stage space um, and its visibility are just are, are, are so valuable and they terrify me and I think but I think it's probably what I've wanted out of performance of any kind um, I definitely wanted it as a musician and was never able to realise it properly, I think. But in poetry, there seems to be so much opportunity, really, to 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 be on stage, to use to use your voice. And I, I think probably um, in certain types of language, colloquial language, um, slang, um, the kind of the kind of things that you find in ordinary speech that are you know that I I hear. You know, I used to hear working class kids use that I would envy, you know, because they were the, the, the charismatic kids. Mm. Um, those, those are things that I put in poems because I wanted, <coughs> wanted a chance to say them because I would have been too shy as a kid to say them. Yeah. And I find myself on stage rocking all kinds of inauthenticity, um, leaning on a northern accent that I my uh, elocuted mother would um, would have would have ticked me off for. <laughs> um, swaggering in a way that, you know, if I if I'd ever done it in a in a playground, you know, would have led to a, a sound thump. Um, you know, so so I think I'm playing out some kind of childhood fantasies yeah. there. I don't see it as inauthentic at all. It really comes across as very believable to me um, and really full of emotion as well. Um, but do you find that it is one of the places where you release emotion and tension and things like that, as you maybe do when you're performing music? It's funny because I've never been uh, been comfortable with the idea of uh, either music as therapy or as sort of self exploration and uh, mm. or or poetry. Um, I know that this is happening to me. I know that there have been have been points of real crisis physically and mentally in my life that I have found some kind of recovery. Is that place space to recover in through? language and performance and I know I am finding that now I think um desperately self-conscious person the moment I think about that as an intention I think it I feel it's all going to yeah. it's all going to evaporate mm-hmm. but I know it's there's there's an exos- exercising of something happening there yeah. I feel it very strongly do you find it's more in the writing itself perhaps um, it all seems intertwined. I can hear the language when I'm writing. I'm terrified of form and of scrutinising my work, which is why we're surrounded in tattered, soiled pieces of paper. <laughs> um, yeah, I fear. I fear what happens when I look at, at, at the written word and try to try to edit it. Um, but I know that when I'm when I'm taking a piece of paper and actually reading it, so it wouldn't work for me if I were just to write for myself, yeah. which is interesting, um, and it wouldn't work for me if I just practised and did it, you know, one one poem again and again. Mm. So there's something in the process, the ritual there that I'm engaged in now that's making me happier. Yeah, 
than I've been for a long time. Yeah. So well, I don't think you always have to be able to pinpoint it either, mm. um, why it works or how. I think that's okay to to just do it as long as it's not making you utterly miserable. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I fight it because I think I bring a lot of um, the points in my life where I feel most in control as a person are usually the point points of analysis, mm. which preclude sort of living in any in any kind of meaningful sense a lot of the time so I think I'm trying to avoid myself I don't really want to look at myself in the mirror here I want to just just have it happen to me yeah um you know there've been many times when I've when I've stopped you know at the brink of something because uh, the analysis hasn't fitted the practice yeah so I don't want that to happen with the poetry I understand (laughs) (laughs) um could you maybe tell us a bit in general about your writing practice how you how you do sit down to write and when it happens and yeah it's it's um again just having to avoid all proper analysis just to describe what's happening maybe um i've found that um i was actually writing song lyrics that i would bring into a poetry environment so they would just have verse chorus formats And so that process was about, you know, leaning on the the patterns of lines, but also having that sense of build to a chorus, you know, repetition, um, sort of sense of rhythm, you know, as a musical rhythm. So it's about making a song work, having a riff, uh, building to a chorus that you would make people listen. Mm. So those kinds of sensibilities. And then something very odd happened because I was doing that and sort of got spotted in the sense that... um, I, th- I thought that was quite deep undercover, but Niall, who runs Poetry Unplugged, sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, you know, were you influenced by, you know, I can hear ranting poetry. And so ranting poetry would be the kind of fusion of music and politics in my, my um, the point of my political epiphany, which was in, in my teens. So, mm. you know, that he, he spotted that really. And the moment he did that, it just he said it's ranting poetry, but reaching out for something more. And I, I resolved not to listen to that or try and act on it because I knew it would ruin the work. So what I ended up doing was was just continuing to write. And then something strange happened um, that I can't that I think has made my work. It's made it longer form, less right. There's less rhyme involved. There are more. Um, concrete images that are being used um, there is storytelling going on but uh, that is is personal but not intended to be um, and all of these things are sort of unengineered it's seemingly they're just kind of occurring mm-hmm. and I think I think those are much better poems more poetic than the other pieces that I was doing um, but I'm not sure and I'm uncomfortable about testing it even which yeah. is uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, could you maybe give us um, some names of some of your main influences in terms of people. Yeah, um, in music, I've always been um, sort of really dogmatic about this, and and you know have obsessively and compulsively followed um, certain certain people. So it would be um, Paul Weller and uh, Morrissey, um, and uh, yeah, who would, I would say would have been the key influences on me musically, and probably other things that are. Um, it's the strongest influences poetically, um, Elvis Costello as well. Um, you know, for for a variety of reasons. Um, I think probably because they um, used language and represented kind of feelings that I didn't feel confident enough to talk about at the t- at the time, um, and I wanted to do that. I thought I thought 
the power uh, that they exercised in doing that I, I thought was the best use of of culture you know and I wanted I wanted to do it I wanted to be Weller you know I wanted to be I'd, you know I never wanted to be Joni Mitchell you know there were no caftans involved I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to the Lonsdale t-shirt I wanted the you know yeah. what the walk onto stage and the Trans Global Express tour you know I wanted um you know that that kind of that kind of power really that I think was a sort of male preserve yeah um and then yeah I think I followed those influences poetically so well as um, poetic influences in in, um, the Liverpool poets, so Adrian Henry, you know, would have been important to me because they were talking about um, life that I recognised and in doing it they were kind of lifting, elevating people Mm. and I wanted a part of that as well and because it was so musical too so I thought I could live both lives as well Um, but probably the other biggest influence you know um, from from the canon would be Shelley really so the mask of anarchy um, you know still sort of towers over me really you know yeah great Um, I'd like to come back to politics briefly Um, I just wanted your opinion on um, something that our fellow poet and friend, the Brothers Grimm, <laughs> aka Chip, <laughs> runs uh, poetry on the picket line. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and for those of you listening who don't know, uh, poetry on the picket line is um, it's a really great thing. Um, Chip gathers together a bunch of us poets um, to go down to to picket lines um, to read some poetry. Uh, add a bit of atmosphere to, or a bit more atmosphere, or a different type of atmosphere, I should say, <laughs> to what's what's happening. Um, and it's a really lovely, it's been a really lovely thing so far, combining uh, poetry readings, um, showing, with that, showing solidarity and just having a presence there, um, adding another element to that. I was just wondering how um, you might see that that, that could progress or, or other ways in which we as writers and artists can use our work um, to, to bring about change and actually do something real. Yeah, it it has been um, a really important thing for me to be involved in as, as you know alongside you as well and we, I think we both became involved at roughly the same time um i think i had baggage to bring to it because i think what um chip is is doing is um uh fusing two things so you know at the point of actual struggle so you know in in when workers are actually in dispute um bringing um a, a performance um to, to to that environment and lifting lifting people inspiring people connecting with them uh, you know making solidarity with them um and i think it has for me that was particularly meaningful as a as a you know an activist of long standing who'd become very disillusioned so mm. i find i'm returning to a picket line um this time without a without a revolutionary paper but with a piece of paper with a poem on it you know so it's been incredibly meaningful for me um but i think the potential in it is um again to bring together two things that 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 were um, very fused in the 80s which is you know cult, culture and, and political struggle um, I think and I think that a lot of the politics um, that you'll and you I hope you'll interrupt me if I wax too 
we'll be lyrically about this, but um, there is a politics uh, um, within the poetry scene, but um, and I see a, a real drive amongst young uh, poets to to, um, to to testify to make some kind of statement. Um, but I think um, most of the time those politics aren't connected with um, action in the external world. So they're very private um, testimonies that are taking place. They're very individualised. They're, they're often to do with sort of self-actualisation rather than revolution or changing the world mm. in any way. Um, and I think that something like... Um, you know the the, the poets on the picket line can feed back into that and bring a sense of how you can as artists help um, to inform struggle and learn from struggle Um, so you know picket lines are places where people's ideas change um, and I think often poets believe that they have to preach to the converted yeah so you know for me that's the potential in it you know and I look forward to you know, yeah. the future in it as well. That's a really lovely way of putting it, actually. Um, and I was thinking as well, particularly as people living in London in a place that is... You know, we're seeing so much change here at the moment and so mm. rapidly, and it's not all very nice. Mm. <laughs> um, it's... Yeah, I mean, we're surrounded by people sort of considering leaving, particularly a lot of young people, and, you know, it's it's quite an important thing to start thinking, well, maybe you know, we should just stick around and try and do something about it. Absolutely. It's a message that was in, um, I'll do a little shout out here actually, to Paula Varjak. Um, I saw her one woman show a few nights ago, uh, Show Me The Money, and that was one of the messages in that, um, about, you know, what, what can we do as artists to to actually use our work and mm. make the changes we'd like to see happening. Um, anyway, we are pushing on for time a little bit so uh, perhaps we could have your final reading um, and then we'll wrap up with our last couple of questions yeah that's great um, this is a, a longer piece um, and again it's about um, working class girls um, and although it's not explicitly political I think there's something in there about um, yeah how those identities are formed that I wanted to say I want hair like Ali's hair. It is named a demi-wave. It is a photo in the window of style. That is the salon on the parade. She rolls it up and holds it wound with a round brush. She sprays it with a shocking pink can, popping the plastic lid off, gripping it in her teeth. She tips it and spits it out on the kitchen tabletop. There's always toast and tea. Six sugars for me. She rattles with her free hands, shaking something inside like a ball bearing stuck in a puzzle. She draws a semicircle side to side. On sunny days in the dust you can see sticky glitter. It stays in place to the shop for sweets and ciggies. Past lads on the park there are whistles, shouting, howls, barking, dogs. I want lips like Ali's lips, gloopy. They are slick, juicy fruit from a gloss bottle she keeps in a towel and t-shirt top pocket. She makes a pout like she's sucking pop. She looks like it tastes nice. She rolls it round and round. She licks at it and rubs it with her fingertip, then reapplies. It never dries. Her lips are like the satin birthday bows my mum used to tie. Ali's little boy is called Johnny. A lad 
sat on her settee, made a dirty joke. Daz doesn't fancy me. She shows me how to snog on the little mirror she carries in her clutch bag. She turns her head clockwise, side to side. She makes a noise as she slides a sigh. Mm. It's cold and flat when I try. She wipes it off with a J-cloth and checks her face. Not a hair out of place. I want eyes like Ali's eyes. She has fabulous, luscious lashes like the lady says on the telly. She uses a wand, they're spindly long like spider's legs. Her whole face opens wide like she's surprised. They're soft toffee O's like Rolo's. Sometimes she uses shadow, blowing powder puffs on the brush, not too much. Circling round the sockets, highlights white to emphasise. They make her look awake. It's her house, so she can stay up late. It's called Coal the Black. It smudges like the smut on the metal ledge by the flame of the gas fire where we try to spark up butts. You have to take it back. It's not enough to hold it in. Keep your mouth shut and then blow. They will know and they will show you up. You have to pull hard. Take a drag deep till it fills you up. Hits you in the ribs. Knackers your back and you can't breathe in anymore. And then you have to let it go. Slow. Effing, filtering, thin lines, lips wide like a smile. You can't cough. If you cough, you're a cocking kid, a fucking stuck-up cunt, and you can't come in, you can't come back, trying to act grown up. Shut up, what's up, you smelly run? Go on, run and tell your mum, and your mum always knows, and she won't let you go. But if I sit on the sill, I can see from my bedroom window and I want jeans like Ali's jeans. The leaves you can see on the label, skin tight on the thighs and then flaring wide, swishing side to side over platform soles. They are peaked toes, painted mauve. I've seen her lie down, hook the hanger on, gripping so the zip closes. She bites her bottom lip and groans and the gap goes. Hip hugging, she grins like a winner. Wonderful. I love that poem. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Nadia. Um, yeah, so what are your aims for your work from now on? Um, it's interesting. Um, oh, well, it, it's, no, it's so much better than interesting. Um, I'd like to get as much joy from writing and performing as I am at the moment. Um I'd like to feel that um, in some way I'm challenging myself in what I do. So I'm aware of um, the absence of technique and form in the work that I do. And it haunts me, um, especially in your presence. Um, and <laughs> I, I don't know how to, to conceive of working on that without it killing any joy stone dead. Um, but I would like to think that you know, I was working hard and in a meaningful way to be a better poet, to deserve a place on, on a stage uh, where I often feel a fraud. Um, I'd just like to, to be honest, if I did, if I did um, a, a, an opportunity just to state it, I'd like a, a, a dodgy 70s transit van with a mattress in the back and to tour around really seamy venues, um, just, just gigging as though I would perpetually... 18 and and in a band 
That sounds perfect. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's good enough for me. Um, uh, So if if listeners want to um, to find more of your work or to see see you perform, uh, where should they go? Um, I will be performing um, next week, which I think is the twenty ninth, at the launch of the um, Joe England's Push magazine that's at okay. the horse and stables i think which is uh you can find that on facebook i think i'm not sure when this will be going out yeah. so that may have oh, passed, may have passed. <laughs> okay so and other than other than that um i had a, a piece that was on um peter reynard's blog proletarian poetry uh, which i think people can find yeah um which is um yeah i'd I'd like to support what peter does as well so um it's just a start but there's a little bit of me there great um well i think we'll wrap it up there thanks so much nadia thank you always a pleasure (laughs) (laughs) and finally it's me speaking to agnes torrick on the balcony of the royal festival hall in the south bank in london um, Agnes was over for a mini tour of the UK from Sweden playing a few spoken word events and uh, promoting her new book which is out through Burning Eye Books there's plenty of places online you can check out Agnes's work and find out where she's gigging um, all the links will be in the description box of this audio and you can order her book through um, the Burning Eye website The old ladies in the hospital have got it all figured out They talk about everything. Crown you family when you were stranger only a minute ago. They talk about the good things, like how nice the nurses are for bringing extra toast at night and whose grandchild is meant to come for visiting hour today. They joke about everything. Well, I don't know what I ever did to that man Parkinson for him to give me his disease. Nothing is serious enough to take serious when death may be at the door. These beds have been rolled around more than once before and I don't know who left or through what door for me to earn a place, but I know I no longer need to earn it because the old ladies in the hospital have got it all figured out. When things get tough, you talk about the worries and the scaries and you get through them. One smile, one compliment and yeah, one cup of tea at a time. Ain't no each man for himself here. Ain't no survival of the fittest here. It's the survival of those most able to cooperate. The survival of those most able to care for more than themselves. It's the survival of us collectively. What does it matter if I get better, if you get worse? How could I be winning if we are losing? So it is with society and so it is with Ward 210 because the old ladies in the hospital have got it all figured out. When things get real rough, I mean, when things get real rough. I mean, when Jessie struggles to reach her straw only to get it stuck so far down her throat, she starts suffocating and Nancy is too far away from her rocker to reach her on time when the rest of us have too many things hooked into our bloodstreams to move when things get real rough. You call for help, capital H. But when help's come and help's helped, you ask how help is doing today because no one's life is easy. Did help get some rest after her shift last night? Has her youngest stopped crying from the toothache? You listen to help too because we are all in this together. And the old ladies in the hospital have got it all figured out because they are fearless in the face of fear because they will literally hang their old laundry out in public and flash each other by opening their gowns daily before they will feel shameful in the face of shame because they put their hearts and minds and scars out in the open. You know you can trust them with your life. Thank you, Agnes. How are you doing? 
I'm good, um, yeah. Just a um, quick note for anyone that's listening. We're sitting out on the balcony at the Royal Festival Hall. So there may be some noise. Actually, when I was listening as you were reading that, it sounded a bit like a jet engine went overhead, but there may have been a train going underneath. I'm not too sure. Also, BBC Radio 3 have got done a takeover of the building, so the, the music you can hear at the moment is going out live on BBC Radio 3. Ah, which is so really we're like live at once, but yeah, at two yeah, different times. Exactly. Um, maybe you could introduce yourself a bit yeah. first. Of course, um, my name is Agnes Tarek or Tarek or Toruk or however you want to pronounce it. Um, I'm a Swedish, Scottish spoken word poet. My family is from Hungary, hence all the difficult pronunciations. Um, I'm currently touring the UK with a book about mental health and happiness. Uh, and I've been doing the spoken wordy stuff for a long while now and I kind of love it. Yeah, um, so you're over here doing this sort of short tour at the moment we won't mention yeah. any of those dates because this probably this is going to go out yeah um after that but we should definitely mention that your new book happiness is an art form is out through burning eye books yes it is uh, so and that, it looks pretty yeah so i'm sure most people listening know of burning eye books and but there'll be a link uh in the description to um uh, burning eyes website and your, your own as well so if anyone wants to check out um what you've got going on they can do it there yeah so that's that bit out of the way yeah good <laughs> um so do you, do you, you said before you've been over to London to gig and do workshops quite a bit in the last year. Is that a big part yeah. of your practice now? Um, I think it's becoming a big part of my practice. So um, I mean, I'm, I'm based in Sweden again after four years in Edinburgh, I'm back in Sweden. And uh, I think the thing is the UK spoken word scene and the London spoken word scene is so exciting and there's so much fun stuff going on that I just can't stay away. Mm. I keep being invited in to do things where I go, oh, I shouldn't, I'll be busy that week, but yeah, I'll come just for a day or, or you know, I'll extend the tour a bit so I can do a few extra things. And, uh, and I'm really loving seeing how much spoken word is blooming here and how much live events and very varied, very diverse sets of live events are, are part of that. Yeah. What's the scene like in Sweden at the moment? Because we've um, uh, just, and this is a note for listeners as well, if mm. they go back in the archive, the second mm. podcast I ever put out was recorded in Stockholm. Oh, cool. With Olivia Bergdahl, oh. Nicholas Messerus, and Sui Lukotsa. <laughs> I so literally, all I literally spoke to uh, <laughs> two of those three yeah. people earlier today. Yeah, and, um, um. and it was, I can't remember the name of, I, I read it a night, just an open mic night, mm. and I cannot, rem- oh, for the life of me, remember what that was called anyway, Henrik, cool. was it Henrik, anyway. Oh, but, Henrik Conradi. Yeah. Was it uh, Stockholm Poetry or yeah. Poetry in the Park? That's, that's it, I'm yeah. doing a workshop with them in yeah. two weeks. So yeah, so what's the scene like um, in Stockholm and, Gen- and Sweden in general? I mean, what, what the scene is like is it's really exciting because a lot of things are, are happening. I think for me, who really started getting into spoken word first in South Africa and I lived there for a little bit and then in Scotland, now that I've been there for four years, it's quite a different scene. Um, and I think the big difference is that there's lots of institutions, theatres, um, kind of school and education related institutions that are really interested in backing it, but there's much less of an infrastructure. Um, so I'm really excited to see all the exciting things that are happening and a lot of the exciting things that are happening are happening in Stockholm but actually quite a bit of them are happening outside of Stockholm as well. Um, Olivia Bardal and Oscar Hanske are running an international spoken word um, club in Malmö and Gothenburg which is brilliant and there's starting to be these things popping up and there's starting to be a real identity um, in kind of the suburbs around Stockholm and Gothenburg. 
um, with Revolution Poetry. So that's super exciting. I never got to meet Revolution Poetry, oh, but I look really they interesting. They are so but, great. Yeah, They're yeah. so cool. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of really exciting things happening, and I guess I'm still in a place trying to figure out how I can add to that and see how we can we can make things even more exciting. But it is a really exciting scene, and I think a big difference as compared to the UK scene, the London scene, the Scotland scene, is that there aren't massive arts cuts. So there's a possibility to do these kinds of things and actually pay performers yeah. um, and actually have international guests come in and, and do these things that are becoming incredibly difficult in the UK scene. And we're never particularly easy, but are certainly not made easier in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I have great hope for the Swedish scene and, and I'm really excited about what's going on. The popularity of spoken word seems yeah. to be um, nationwide rather than... I, I think because I because I lived in Norway, mm -hmm. I sort of assumed that it would follow the same model. Whereas sort of that kind of spoken word thing is very Oslo centric yeah, in Norway. There's but a few in things Sweden, in Bergen, but yeah. that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, and I think I think that infrastructure that's been there over years is a big part of it. And um, I was I've been at the the World Poetry Slam Championships. I've been at the Scottish Poetry Slam Championships, and I've not been at but heard a lot about the. Well, officially they're the UK ones, but they're kind of the London-based ones, the two different um, slams there, or national slams that are here. Um, and it's a very big difference between the Swedish ones. All of these other ones are based on, you know, a night or two nights, and often, you know, in a pub or a theatre. And um, in the Swedish slams, you know, we've got poets from literally 12 different regions in the country coming together, living together for four days, having, you know, coaches and teams and there's all these things around it that just make a big difference to creating this nationwide community that can really interact and build off each other, which is really exciting. Um, um, what's some people are going to want to shoot me for asking this question. But, uh, <laughs> not, not in Sweden, but just people who listen to this. Um, is there what's the divide like between, or do some people consider themselves page poets and some mm -hmm. people stage? Or, or is, is there a divide? <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I think it is a good question because I think, as far as I've understood in the UK and especially in Scotland, that's been a, been a big debate. Mm. And there's been and there's such a long literary history in places like Edinburgh and of of live literature events that go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years but that are page-based and then kind of a resurgent in spoken word poetry slam where being off the page is a big merit and I don't think that divide is quite there in Sweden to be honest partly I guess the literary history is different um, there's a different tradition of those things but also poetry slams today you know there's not this huge emphasis on being off the page there's not a huge emphasis on on it being theatrical or dramatic or performed only if there is no script on stage. Um, so I think, I think actually it's less of an issue there, but there is also a bigger discussion about how to mix it with other art forms, I think. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of interesting things happening in London with kind of spoken word theatre, um, a lot of things happening around Roundhouse and that sort of thing where there's a lot of fusion of different art forms and a lot of, um, I'm, I'm working with Tung Fu later today, well, I guess in the past when this is aired, um, which is, you know, fus fusing spoken word and music, which is really exciting. And I think there's a similar fusion going on in Sweden, only there's no difference there between when you're fusing um, poetry that is in page poetry or written form, whether it's performed or not, and poetry that's written to be performed. So I think there's, um, yeah, less of a divide, yeah. and in quite an exciting way. It, it opens up some interesting possibilities to collaborate with other art forms. I suppose the next question would be relating to how you develop your own work. Is there much of a conversation between poets in Sweden publicly, or 
over here, I'll tell you why, I'm I, sort of thinking about having an, an episode discussing the, the, uh, the, the growth of collectives, poetry yeah. collectives, in, yeah. in, 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 especially in cities um, yeah. in this country. Um, there are, I won't, I'm not going to bother going into my own opinions mm. about the pros and cons, they'll come out mm. later on when we talk about it, but I was just wondering, is there a similar setup in Sweden or is it still a bit more not, lonely? Not, well, I mean, I, I'm not, I hope it's not lonely, yeah, yeah. but there are definitely fewer poetry collectives. I think Revolution Poetry and Förena de Farorter, uh, or United Suburbs, um, have been the, the main kind of team and they've organised this team and there's been a lot of collaborative shows and as far as I've seen, that's not happened on a bigger scale otherwise. Yeah. There's some secret projects in the work that I will not talk too much about <laughs> at the moment, but that involves uh, a new uh, poetry collaboration uh, in Sweden. But I think generally um, there's less focus on that also, I think, because there's not the equivalent of um, kind of spoken word festivals. Yeah. We don't have, you know, the Swedish scene doesn't have the equivalent of an Edinburgh Fringe. It doesn't have the equivalent of a spoken word theatre like Reintheis. Um, and so there's not a lot of focus on putting together longer shows, rather putting on things like open mics, poetry slams, where there's not the same space for collaborative work. So I'm, I'm excited to see where we might end up with that. It's quite interesting because, as you mentioned earlier, you've got places like MDT and Stockholm mm. where you get a crossover, but you're right, there's no, yeah. you don't have the same dedicated theatre spaces that we do in London, but it'd be interesting to see how it develops anyway with the, yeah. the crossovers between the performing arts and, and spoken word in that way. Yeah. Um, but to you personally, how important is conversation with other writers in the development of your work? Crucial. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't think I would ever I don't think I would ever come up with ideas that I feel are polished and worthwhile and that are prepared for an audience unless I had that conversation with other people. Um, I often talk about having kind of uh, poetry partners. I have a poetry wife based in Edinburgh who, you know, I run all my poetry business by and she gives me feedback and she can be as brutally honest as she likes and it, and it tends to work out uh, great because we have that conversation. Um, and, and similarly, I mean, I have that with, with Poets Based in London and Poets Based in Stockholm. Um, and I think that's really key. I think what I'm finding now that I'm starting to write uh, poetry and spoken word in Swedish for the first time in five, six years, is that I'm, I'm getting to a point where I'm looking at uh, new ways to collaborate with people and new ways to get feedback because the people I've been relying on feedback and, and conversation about new pieces for don't speak that language. <laughs> yeah, so I'd like to talk more about the uh, the language that you write in mm. in a moment, but maybe we'll take a second reading before we do that. Absolutely, let's do that. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about happiness and mental health and writing this book and touring a show on the same topic. And uh, I came up with this poem about how I think we're mostly told that happiness should be. Happy. Happy capital H. Happy the women's magazine. 45 tips for a hotter, trendier, sexier happiness. Is everyone else happier than you? We thought so. Take this quiz to find out today. May lead to feelings of inadequacy, stress, achievement seeking and general unhappiness. Happy, happy capital H. I happy, Mac happy. Happiness 2.0. I'd like to order happy please. Happy with a side of self-fulfillment and a large Coke. I'd like to order a happy please, happy with a side of personal achievement and perfect Facebook posts. I'd like to order a happy please, happy with a side of uh, smug, 
happy with the sight of better than your average life and your dead-end job and your snot-faced kids and your underwhelming relationship, happy with the sight of your failures, your unaccomplishments, your dislike for getting up at 5.30 in the morning for a jog, that's not morning, it's a great night out. Happy as a medal, happy as a success story, happy as if happiness belonged to Hollywood blockbusters and advertisement companies, happiness as if happiness belonged to Coca-Cola. Happy as if happiness did not belong to you. Why would we pursue a happiness that does not belong to us? As if our lives do not belong to us. As if the meaning of our lives is not defined by us. As if we didn't all have to go through the terrifying and amazing process of figuring out what actually makes us happy. As if happiness wasn't political. As if that political choice wasn't yours. As if you could buy happiness in a Coca-Cola cap. Thank you very much. Uh, it's funny, actually, it's funny you should uh, read that. I was on the bus at what, seven o'clock this morning going to a poetry breakfast, mm -hmm. and um, I, I must have seen an advertisement, but I can't remember what it was, but it sparked off in my mind um, uh, this idea. This, I was just thinking about what the pressure we're all under to mm -hmm. be happy. Mm -hmm. I think because I was the I, I might have imagined in my head someone saying, oh, it must, be, make, must make you really happy that you get to go to see poetry for breakfast. And I, at yeah. that point, I wasn't feeling very... Few <laughs> <I was laughs> people really, do at 7.30 in the morning. I was feeling really tired. Anyway, yeah, but, yeah thanks for reading. Um, so you, you mentioned you've just started writing in Swedish again recently. Yeah. That was something I wanted to talk about. I noticed in Stockholm that a lot of the spoken word stuff was in English. Do you think a yeah. lot of people are under pressure in order... To, in a sort of career sense to write in English in Sweden? Um, I hope not. Mm. You know, in a, in a way I think I struggle to imagine that because I, I only really got into spoken word once I'd moved, so I'm, I'd done a slam or two but I hadn't done much. But I think what it is is that, I mean, according to the most recent research, Swedish people are um, have the highest level of English speaking ability of any non-native language speakers in the world. And I think it means that there's this, you know, Swedish people tend to have this huge access to English speaking culture, whether that's from the UK or the US or Australia or India or South Africa or wherever. But it, it tends to mean that so much of the culture we consume, whether that's, you know, TV series, films, uh, music and spoken word tends to be in that language. So I think it's um, it's not necessarily a pressure to do it, to do spoken word and poetry in English for your career so much as that's where your influences are coming from that's um, who you start out mimicking because that's who you're impressed by you know I remember before I knew anything about Swedish poetry I was head over heels in love with Sarah Kay's poetry and so I wanted to write Sarah Kay poetry and you can't really do that in Swedish because there's something about the language melody that doesn't quite match with her style um, and so I think I think there's I hope there's less of a pressure to, to write in English for a career sake and more of an interest in exploring what that language can do that the Swedish language doesn't do as well yeah. and vice versa. I think definitely a very fair point about the influences there mm. and that, that was something I wanted to talk to you about as well because obviously YouTube, your YouTube channel is, quite, is a very big point, part of your um, practice and your self-promotion. Yeah. Um, I, I think I would still argue though, uh, your your inspirations and your influences are still connected to career pressures. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're if you're yeah. trying to make if you if you want to be, I suppose most people who listen to this and most people that are um, 
uh, continuing with performing this Pokemon, mm -hmm. want to make money out of it in some way, yeah. would like to be professional in order to yeah. dedicate more time to it. If you're then looking at examples of ways yeah. to do that, most of those examples probably exist in Are English, don't speaking? they? Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that's perfectly true. And I mean, generally, you know, comparing a language to Swedish, which has, I mean, Swedish has, uh, or the Swedish language has something like between nine and 10 million speakers, maybe 11. You know, if you count in, you know, um, <coughs> some Finland-based people who, who speak Swedish as a first language, some Norwegians who understand Swedish perfectly, Danish people who understand Swedish perfectly, we're still talking under 15 million people who could possibly understand you, even if every single one of them was into what you do, that's fewer YouTube followers than, you know, some English-speaking poets have. And I, and I think there is definitely, and, and there's an understanding for me as well that, uh, you know, moving to Sweden and, and doing things in Swedish in Sweden, what I do online will still be based in English. Um, I guess partly because that's where some of the people who are interested in my work are and, uh, well, that's language-wise what some of the people who are interested in my work speak. Uh, and I, get, I think there is a pressure there. You're, you're right in saying that. But I think, I think it comes more from a place of, of wanting to reach people rather than wanting to achieve loads of things. I, I, I still think that, you know, with one or two maybe, exceptions you know there are no there are no poetry millionaires none of us are in this for the money oh no sorry that's why when, when i say career i don't necessarily yeah. mean people chasing yeah. uh, pounds or krona or dollars or yeah. whatever because you're you're not going to get that from poetry no. anyway no you're um not. you know i think you can think of your career as an attempt to reach the most people yeah. you know and not think of it in financial terms you know yeah. i think that and it's in, in that sense yeah. i think you're absolutely right and because because sweden's also a place that speaks english so broadly and so well Generally, you don't lose audiences in Sweden from yeah. speaking English in your poetry and writing and performing and, and marketing yourself in English, but you do lose a, a huge audience by only choosing Swedish. So, yeah, I think so, you're right about that. So, what? Um, how has it been writing in Swedish again? Have you found that you're limited, or has it opened opportunities for you? Um, I, I, I don't think. And so far, I'm not showing it to anyone. So there are no opportunities <laughs> to gain. Um, I'm very much kind of trying to work through it on my own. And there are there are um, you know issues and subject matter that I'm finding easier to write about in English, and some that I'm finding easier to write about in Swedish. I think sometimes I've thought of writing in English as a very comfortable barrier between myself and my work. In that, no matter how personal the subject matter is, it is not the subject. It's not the way in which I think about it for myself. It's not. It's usually not the language in which I experience those things, or thought about those things, or uh, process those things. So there's always this very comfortable distance between something very personal that I'm leaving out in front of people who might, you know, criticize it to pieces, and then the actual experience, which is mine and which is in Swedish. And that barrier is removed when I start writing in Swedish. Um, yeah. So I, I think it is, it is challenging, but it's also a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and the Swedish language makes for a lot of interesting ways to play with the way that words and sentences are put together. Um, and that has led to some really cool things. So I, I am excited about it, but I am much less sure of my own ability to write something that makes sense to anyone else in Swedish than yeah. I am in English. Yeah. So getting back to YouTube, you're, you're, you've got a lot of stuff on YouTube. and um, So far, is, yeah. Do you film yourself or do you work with others with uh, filming? Both. Yeah. It depends on, on how big the project is, how much time and money and resources mm. I have to dedicate it. As a rule, I try and make sure that anyone I collaborate with, if there's money involved at any stage, that they always get paid. So. 
right now I'm crowdfunding all my videos. I release one every month. Um, occasionally I'll I'll make a bigger one. So um, at the start of September I released a big video that you know garnered however a couple of hundred thousand views and we knew that it was a video that might speak to a lot of people and we wanted to make it really well produced um, really uh, nicely put together we wanted to do a big release for it um, and and have it you know spread the message which was um, it was about online harassment and abuse of women um, and we wanted to spread that message as far as we could and so with that I worked with the Dangerous Women Project and with a videography a videographer called uh, Josie Tang who's fantastic um, and there was, she did a lot of the actual work. I wrote the poem, a lot of the rest was her. And, and you know, she's amazing. And then for the video that I released a few days back, so at the start of September, it was literally me and my laptop and my book. And I had a bit of a chat with a camera and then it went live. Um, and so I think it depends. And it was a much smaller scale poem. It was, it was not a big message that I wanted to reach as many people with. It was, this is a nice poem. I've got to share it with you. And, and I think for different types of projects, there's different levels of engagement that you're wanting to do there and there's also just different amounts of time and, and money that you can spend on it so um, I don't know I would love to be this kind of person who could just magically put together a fantastically beautifully edited video on my own I normally don't have the time or the skills to do that really um, but I do when the, when I've written something that I go actually this this needs something better than Actually, my skills. I think I think it's a nice message because I think quite often with poetry and spoken word stuff when you do see it film version yeah. often it isn't considered enough and yeah. I, I think it's I think it's an important message that people should think more about uh, the message of the piece and yeah. what that demands in terms of yeah. film you know yeah. you don't always need you know sometimes something shot on your iPhone is enough yeah, and absolutely. sometimes you need a slightly bigger production value yeah um, you're, you said you're crowdfunding how exactly are you doing that um, so there's a, a website called patreon and it essentially works like um, you um, you pledge every month to something and in exchange you get something new back every month yeah. so uh, rather than crowdfunding to reach a certain goal to release a one-off thing like a CD or a film yeah. or a book or whatever and um, it's essentially people saying I will pledge one dollar a month it's a dollars or fifty dollars a month some people I don't know do that which is amazing um, and and they'll say you know I pledge this much every month and in exchange uh, they get to see the videos I release first it's entirely funded by the money that they put into it um, and when I'm doing something particularly exciting like now when I'm on tour this, this tour is entirely crowdfunded by them okay. um, then I will kind of give them updates along the way and go uh, you know today was an awesome day I did this and this and that or today I'm kind of ill and I'm in bed and I feel really sorry for myself please tell me to drink some tea <laughs> you know and and there's the kind of whole uh, spectrum there and there's a lot of personal engagement but essentially you can crowdfund individual projects I choose to crowdfund um, on a regular basis so you're instead. Sort of crowdfunding your practice rather than Yeah, the, and, and I mean it's yeah. not quite at a point yet where it covers, you know, it doesn't cover my rent or all my yeah. living expenses, but it does cover all the costs of producing the videos mm. that I do and it allows me to pay all the people involved yeah. in producing the videos that I do and awfully, often it involves me um, being able to pay myself at least a little bit as well. So kind of making those things sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, we'll put a link to the Patreon page um, in the description along with your website. I think we might be running out of time, but we have okay. time for one more reading okay. to finish on. One last poem. So uh, this actually is, is the last crowdfunded video as well. It went live on October 1st. Um, and it's about why art is so, 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 so key for mental health. It's called The Heart is a Muscle. I read, 
I read because the heart is a muscle and like any muscle it needs exercise to grow stronger. We exercise, we strengthen, we grow our hearts when we practice empathy. When we allow the thoughts of feelings of others to permeate us, become part of us, color the way we see the world. When we practice empathy, when we read about others' experiences, others' challenges and victories, others' lived worlds and fictional realities. When we allow others' truths to be equal to our own, as real as our own, as important as our own. Reading is growing our horizons, strengthening our invisible bonds to others, linking our stories with theirs, letting empathy shape and sharpen our solidarity, our outlook, our way of being in the world. I read because the heart is a muscle and like any muscle it needs exercise. Empathy is that exercise, reading is how we grow our hearts, I write. I write because the heart is a muscle and like any muscle it needs stretching. Making art is how we stretch our hearts, telling our stories, sharing our truths is how we release the tension of pent up stress, undo the pressure from constant use of the heart. We make art to make an outlet for all the steam made in the pressure cooker of our insides. It makes it bearable to live in a world so full of suffering, both our own and others. It lets a little space in to notice the sunshine too. I write because it makes me human, because it allows me to talk to myself honestly because it lets me speak to people I have never met and may never come to meet, because it lets me speak to you. I write because art transcends me, survives me, is bigger than me, because my story is connected with others. Our joys, our challenges are intertwined, yours and mine, part of the same patchwork, the same epic poem of humanity. I write because the brain can be trained to reshape and reform itself, because we can sketch new neural pathways, new patterns of practice when we write our way there. I write because the heart is a muscle and like any muscle it needs stretching. Making art is how we stretch our hearts. I read and write because it literally, physically changes who I am on a synapse level, makes me more of what I want to be, less of what I am afraid to become. I make art because the heart is a muscle and it must be trained. Thank you Thank very you. much, Agnes. Thank you so much Thank for having you. me. Thanks for joining us.